You're listening to the Meeting Midway podcast, a podcast of Midway United Methodist Church in Alpharetta, Georgia, featuring Pastor Jenny Andoni and Pastor Brad Biggerstaff. Over the course of the podcast, we'll hear how the church relates to the real-world issues that matter to you and how God loves us all. And now, let's meet Midway. Our scripture lesson comes to us today from the letter to Philemon beginning with the first verse and continuing through the 21st. Hear now God's word to us this day. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Aphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers, I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith towards the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. And I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So, If you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be. Did you know that when Abraham Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address, that he was not even the keynote speaker that day. 
That honor was given to the great orator Edward Everett, who with dramatic flourish delivered a well-crafted message of over two hours, much to the delight of the audience. <laughs> then it was President Lincoln's turn. He had been asked to offer a few dedicatory words for the battlefield cemetery. Lincoln's speech consisted of a scant 272 words that took three minutes to deliver. He was wrong, though, when he said, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. Instead, his words became the most famous speech in American history, while Everett's receded in the nation's memory. Why is the Gettysburg Address held in such high esteem? Well, brevity probably helped. You know, it's short enough that we can actually commit it to memory. It takes a lot of skill and wordsmithing to deliver a meaningful message in just a few minutes. But more important than its succinctness, Lincoln's address became famous because in it he challenged the nation to live up to the high ideals on which it was founded. Four score and seven years ago, say it with me, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. By the end of the address, the audience knew that when Lincoln said, all men, he was including people of African descent, which was a departure from the intent of the founding fathers. Through a linguistic sleight of hand, observed commentator Scott Hosey, Lincoln shifted from dedicating a cemetery to making the American people dedicate themselves to a new birth of freedom which was nothing less than the end of slavery. You know, sometimes subtleness and succinctness are a more effective means of changing minds and behaviors. Actually, most of the time, it's more effective. Unless, of course, you're talking about disciplining a two-year-old. If you heard that today's sermon was going to be on an entire book of the Bible, you might have skipped. But take heart, as Leslie Estonis told us, Philemon is one of the shortest books in the Bible, and Paul's only personal letter in the canon. It is also one of the apostles' briefest letters, a scant 335 words in the original Greek. It is a letter of recommendation written by Paul on behalf of Onesimus, a runaway slave. The latter's purpose is to pave the way for Onesimus to return to his master's household without being subjected to harsh punishment for going AWOL. 
Paul writes to ensure that he's not sending Onesimus back to a dreadful beating, or worse, a death sentence, which was an acceptable way in the Roman Empire to deal with a runaway slave. Paul wrote this letter around 60 AD while under house arrest in Rome, a city where you know, people on the lamb often ended up. Somehow, the lives of these two men from opposite sides of the tract intersect, and under the influence of Paul's teaching, Onesimus comes to faith in Christ. Now Onesimus and Paul have agreed that it is time for him to face the music and make the 1,500-mile track back to his master. Now what do we know about his master Philemon? Well, we know that he is a leader in the church in Colossae and a friend of Paul's and a co-worker in the kingdom, someone who, like Onesimus, was converted under Paul's teaching. We also know that Philemon is a man of means. Not only is he wealthy enough to own at least one slave, but also owns a home big enough for the Christians there to meet the house church in his home. In addition, Paul acknowledges that Philemon has he, as he says, refresh the hearts of the saints, by which he means that Philemon has provided for the needs of the believers out of his own pocket. Well, right from the start, Paul's letter is a master class on how to win friends and influence people. Unlike our letters or emails that you know we sign at the end, in letters in antiquity, the signature, uh, the signature of the sender appears at the beginning. So usually Paul would begin, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This time, though, he begins, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. By this, Paul is not only indicating his current state of imprisonment, but also that he is not going to pull his apostle card on Philemon. In other words, he wants Philemon's right actions to, to proceed from a transformed heart, to proceed from love. And he wants them to do so not because he is obeying a command on the basis of Paul's authority as an apostle, though Paul certainly had a right to do so, as Paul says, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love. Paul puts himself on equal footing with Philemon recognizing him as a friend and a co-worker. And then, for good measure, Paul plays to Philemon's sympathy, making mention of his vulnerable state as an old man and a prisoner. Before making his appeal, 
Paul greases the wheel further by complimenting Philemon for what he has done for the church and Paul. He commends his friend for his love for all the saints and his faith in Jesus Christ. And he speaks of the joy and encouragement he has received from Philemon's love because he has refreshed the hearts of the saints. Not until 145 words into this 335-word letter does Paul bring up the reason for the correspondence. He finally mentions Onesimus by name. You know, most of us count, can't count to three before jumping in to make our argument. But Paul demonstrates a remarkable restraint. When he finally does call Onesimus by name, he does so by carefully framing his relationship with him in language that conveys an intimate family bond. I am appealing to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. I am sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. And if that's not enough to sway Philemon, Paul goes on to employ a pun rather effectively to drive home his request. You see, the, the name Onesimus means beneficial or useful. So Paul does a play on words, writing, Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. Useful not as a lowly slave, mind you, but as a brother in Christ. Perhaps, says Paul, this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but as more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you? In other words, perhaps the Lord's hand has been at work in this coincidence that Paul happened to come to know the runaway slave of his friend Philemon, who lives 1,500 miles away from where Paul is in prison. It seems to Paul another case of all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. Now as a believer, Onesimus can be graciously received back by Philemon as a brother who can help shoulder the work of the gospel. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me, says Paul. To welcome Onesimus back in love would be the same as Philemon welcoming Paul himself. Words of which we hear the echo of Jesus who said, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Paul then makes a promise. He promises to repay any debt Onesimus owes. A surety Paul guarantees by writing this letter with his own hand. 
You know, though the apostle doesn't say it explicitly, if we read between the lines, we understand that what Paul really wants is for Philemon to give Onesimus his freedom. Paul wants Philemon to do this good voluntarily. But to ensure he does, he not so subtly reminds him, I say nothing about your owing me even your own self. Though in fact, he just did exact that, right? Yes, brother, let me have this benefit. Again, a play on the word for useful. Let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. In other words, I know you'll not only meet my request, but exceed my expectations. And then, as an insurance policy, Paul adds, one more thing, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping through your prayers to be restored to you. In other words, and just so you know, Philemon, I'll be coming to check up on you and see how all this plays out. This letter is a fascinating window into the relationship among three men in the early church and also the institution of slavery in the Roman Empire. This was not the chattel slavery based on race of our dark history. In the Roman Empire, almost anyone could become a slave for a variety of reasons, but often they did because the Romans, after conquering a people, would segregate them as a matter of control, much as you know the Hebrews were exiled and enslaved in Egypt. So you may be wondering now, what such a personal letter has to say to us today? After all, it isn't thick with theological teaching like Paul's other letters. There is, however, much we can glean from it that bears a great deal on how we relate to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ today. Did you know that last month marked the 400th anniversary of a boat landing on the shores of the English colony of Virginia carrying the first African slaves to this land? Ironically, the name of the port where those 20-odd people were brought to be sold on the auction block was named Point Comfort. What relevance does that have to do with us today? After all, I don't know that any of you own slaves. A New York Times project entitled 1619 points out that the long-term impact of slavery in the United States is so often ignored or misunderstood. 
While Paul entreated Philemon to receive Onesimus as much more than a slave, the lasting impact of slavery is often minimized in our nation. As Professor Hassan Kwame Jeffries reports, the idolatry, or rather the ideology, ideology which rationalized bondage for 250 years has justified the discriminatory treatment of African Americans for the 150 years since the Civil War ended. The belief that black people are less than white people has made segregated schools acceptable, mass incarceration possible, and police violence permissible. This makes the myth that slavery had no lasting impact extremely consequential, denying the persistence and existence of white supremacy obscures the root causes of the problems that continue to plague African Americans. As a result, policymakers fixate on fixing black people instead of trying to undo the discriminatory systems and structures that have resulted in separate and unequal education, voter suppression, health disparities, and a wealth gap. Something did happen 150 years ago, he writes. Slavery ended. But the institution's influence on American racism and its continued impact on African Americans is still felt today. Now I know that among us, some of you may disagree with what I just read. After all, we like to think that affirmative action leveled the playing field long ago. But do you know who benefited most from affirmative action? People like me, educated white women. My brothers and sisters, it's no secret that we live in a county with deeply rooted historical racial prejudice. Every black was driven out of this county in 1912. As late as 1987, the county was all white. And in 1997, African-American residents numbered just 39. Though many persons of color, including immigrants, are now a part of our community, much evidence of entrenched racism still persists. You know, some months ago, I came up to the office one Saturday to do some work, and I printed out something to the copier that sits out and open in the main office. And when I went to retrieve it, I found a hangman's noose laying on the top of it. Who put it there? I don't know. How someone, member or non-member, got into a locked office to place it there concerns me. I debated for months what to do about it. 
You know, would I give the devilish deed more power by calling attention to it? So I finally consulted with Dr. Catherine Meeks, who's a retired professor of Mercer and Wesleyan University, who now leads the Absalom Jones Center for Racial Reconciliation. And she encouraged me to share it with you. So I do so today so that the evil deed that is done in the dark may be brought into the light. And so that all will know that the only symbol of execution welcome on this holy ground is a cross. There is a persistent devilish racism that exists still in the church and within our denomination. We have not done such a good job relating to one another across racial lines. As my colleague Rodrigo pointed out, the reason that the LGBTQ issue has gotten so much play in our denomination, he said, is because it has to do with white church members. My African-American colleague Byron wisely wondered, how are we going to talk about sex if we can't even talk about race? William Wilberforce was converted to Christ under the influence of the ex-slave trader John Newton, who's you know, well known for writing the lyrics, of course, of Amazing Grace. Well, after his conversion, Wilberforce wanted to become a preacher. But Newton encouraged him not to, but instead to remain as a member of parliament and to work to abolish slavery. Well, after years of defeat as an abolitionist, Wilberforce was very discouraged. His friend John Wesley heard of it, and with shaky hand, the 88-year-old clergyman penned a short letter to Wilberforce that read, Unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But if God be for you, who can be against you? Are all of them stronger than God? Oh, be not weary of well-doing. Go on, in the name of God and the power of his might, till even American slavery shall vanish away before it. Wesley died six days later. For 45 more years, Wilberforce fought for abolition of slavery. And in 1833, just three days before his death, the English Parliament passed the Slavery Abolition Act. You know, Paul was not a social reformer. He didn't call for the abolition of slavery, much to the disappointment of modern readers. You know, Paul was very much a man of his time. 
He only rallied to the defense of this single slave named Useful. Just a tool in his master's house. But to Paul, he was no slave, but a son. So close that he was as his own heart. Paul understood the power of the gospel to restore and reconcile people to God and to one another. He understood that the ground is level at the foot of the cross. Writing earlier in a letter to the Galatians, there is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male or female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. My brothers and sisters, we're not all that different from Onesimus, you and I. We're all of us, you know, in one way or another, runaway slaves, just trying to escape from our enslavement to the sin of this world and the prejudice that separates us from one another. We're all trying to make our way home for restoration. Like Onesimus, though we need someone to intercede on our behalf, the difference is that our intercessor did not plead our case with ink, but with his very blood. And through his death, he has restored us in love that we might be reconciled to God and to one another as Christ loves us. Two years ago, a man named Ken Parker joined other white supremacists at a Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. Well, through a series of encounters and the love of a black congregation, Parker came to reject the message of hate he once promoted. Six years after he joined the Ku Klux Klan, and just seven months after Charlottesville, Parker decided that he'd had enough of hate. A month later, he stood before a mostly African-American church that had become his church home and testified. He says, I said I was a grand dragon of the KKK and that the Klan wasn't hateful enough for me, so I decided to become a Nazi. And a lot of them, their jaws about hit the floor and their eyes got re real big. But after the service, not a single one of them had anything negative to say. They're all coming up and hugging me and shaking my hand, you know, building me up instead of tearing me down. On July 21st, 2018, wearing a different kind of robe, Parker walked hand in hand with Reverend William McKinnon, 
would become like a father to him. And in the Atlantic Ocean, the black pastor put the former clan's member head under the water and raised him into new life. So, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. As we work together with him, we urge you not to accept the grace of God in vain. Let us pray. Glory and praise to you, O God. For you have created us to belong to one another. Your love reaches out and draws us to you and to each other. We confess, dear God, and before you and one another that we have sinned. We know all people are your children, and yet we separate folks as if we are not all of the same tribe. We place some above us and many below us as if our perspective changes their identity in you. Help us, Lord, to pay the cost of giving up our biases and treating all with the love of Christ. We give you thanks for all the blessings we have received from you through those who have loved us as a part of the family of God. We thank you for the acts of faith and courage of those who strive to remove barriers that have been erected between people. And Lord, we pray for all your children, and especially for those who still find themselves treated as less than full members of the family. We pray for wisdom and courage to be part of correcting these wrongs that are an affront to you as the creator of all. We make this prayer in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Meeting Midway podcast from Midway United Methodist Church. The doors to our community are open to all, and we invite guests to join us at our services on Sunday. We have a traditional worship service at 8.30 a.m. in our historic chapel, an acoustic worship service at 9.45 a.m. in our historic chapel, and a contemporary service at 11 a.m. in our modern sanctuary. For more information, check us out online at midwayumc.org. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon.